My name is Jeff Lerner, and I interview elite performers from a wide range of disciplines, entrepreneurs, athletes, celebrities, scientists, artists, and more. This is Unlock Your Potential. Welcome to another episode of Unlock Your Potential. Jeff Lerner, your host. So excited to be back with you, having amazing conversations with amazing human beings. And today is one that I have been looking forward to for quite some time. Carol Roth, uh, two times New York Times bestselling author, author uh, of including the new book, You Will Own Nothing, and you'll like it. This is how that quote ends. Uh, World Economic Forum. Was that Klaus Schwab? Did, did he say that? Um, anyways, uh, Carol is a content creator. She's a recovering investment banker. Excited to hear what she means by that. Uh, author of The War on Small Business. Um, also, The Entrepreneur Equation. She's on TV. She's... Uh, been on, you know, like Fox business shows and CNBC. She's a, she's a pundit who people call to opine on things because her opinion is more credible than theirs and they want her to share. Um, she has huge hair that she's super excited about because she put it in her bio that she's uh, an advocate for big hair, big hair, small business, and hopefully even smaller government. I think we're aligned on that. Host the podcast, The Roth Effect. Uh, I honestly, like we should just sit, sit here for an hour and I'll just give you all your accolades or do you, maybe we could actually talk. Welcome. Jeff, so great to be with you. And uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm a collector of experiences. So it would take a very long time to go through all the things that I do, but uh, would rather be chatting with you. Well, I'm uh, like I said, I'm, I've been really excited to have you on the show. Um, I, I feel I don't want I don't want to be presumptuous, but I feel a lot of ideological alignment um, and also not just so much we agree. Um, it's not always not that productive to agree. It's more like, I feel like we're equally pissed off about some of the things that we agree on and the fact that not everybody does and we need to go be the change in the world that the world needs. So um, maybe that's a you know haughty way to say that. Anyway, um, welcome. So maybe let's start, gosh, where to start? Uh, let's start with Recovering Investment Banker. That's probably one we, we want to unpack as quickly as we can. And then, and then I'll probably go backwards from there and I want to learn more about your origins and such. But like, let's start with Retired Investment Banker. What's that all about? Or, yeah, or I, well, reco I, I, recovered, I should say. <laughs> well, not recovered, recovering is a process. Re it's oh. 12, a 12 step program, if you will, uh, permanently stuck on stage <laughs> 11. And a nice place to start instead of uh, bonding over our anger right out of the gate. I feel like we need to build up to that. Uh, so yeah, so I was, um, you know, the first person in my immediate family to graduate from college. And I was fortunate to have some people around me where that I could look to and go, oh, you know, what are these people doing? What are these people doing? Because neither of my parents had any idea of what they were doing. And I got myself into Wharton undergrad and I'm milling around there, um, self-funded my education and uh, you know, came out with about $40,000 in college debt kind of mid nineties. <laughs> so my father said, you know, you could only, you should only take that on if you could pay it off really quickly. So that was the promise I had made going in. And so when I got there and I'm asking all of my friends, well, like, what, what do you do? What, what, what should I do? Uh, particularly if I want to get the most skills possible, but also pay this debt down really quickly. I was sort of shown two paths at Wharton. One for people who like to deep dive into something, you go become a management consultant and you join like the McKinsey's of the world. And for people who have ADD, you go become an investment banker so you can work on a bunch of transactions. Um, so I was like, oh, that's clearly more aligned with the things that I like to do. 
And so I joined a firm in San Francisco called Montgomery Securities that over the years became Nations Bank Montgomery, became Bank of America Securities and whatnot. Um, but uh, I really loved it, uh, went full full force in that you know early sort of part of my career, paid down the debt in a year and a half, was a vice president by the time I was 25 years old and an officer of the company. Um, but they went through, as I mentioned, these mergers, and I ne never really wanted to be the world's best investment banker. It was just kind of a, a clear starting point for something. And so eventually I said, oh, I'm going to go do something else. I ended up starting my own broker dealer. And uh, from there, as I sort of morphed my career into this collector of experiences, you never really get out of deal making once you're a deal maker. So one of the things I still do on an ongoing basis is I have relationships with a few private equity firms and I help them evaluate transactions. And to the extent that there are transactions that make sense, I might co-invest with them or sit on the board or play an advisory role. So I had one that just came into my inbox, um, you know, before the Super Bowl, <laughs> and, uh, taking a peek at uh, something kind of interesting with a firm that I, I look at things with on a pretty regular basis. But, you know, as I said, I, I don't do it as sort of the the center of what I do. It's just kind of a, a, a little a little piece off on the side. So before we go backwards, Although I, because that's kind of like a thing I do on this show is it's like, yes, we have people that do really interesting things, but for every person that does an interesting thing, it's because at some point they became the person that would inevitably do that interesting thing. And that story always intrigues me. But before we go there, I'll ask, um, what, what happened that you didn't do what so many investment bankers do, which is even if they don't stay in investment banking per se, they still sort of stay in a fairly traditional lane because honestly, that's an industry where you can you can play it reasonably safe or or at least be yeah. like pal palatable to your peers and make a crap ton of money. So like, why rock that boat? But you have more of like a maverick vibe. So what what happened there? What what the hell's wrong with you? That's a really great question that uh, I don't think anyone has ever asked me or at least phrased in that way. Um, a couple things happened is that when I came out, you know, I was from a, a family that, um, you know, had achieved a certain level of success, but was probably pretty modest vis-a-vis um, -vis what I had in mind. But I had a, a very specific goal, which was to make my first million by 30. And once I had reached that, I didn't have the goal to be a hundred billionaire or a billionaire or something like that, that was like, oh, well, maybe this is the safe path to do that. So, you know, it, I had a very sort of specific goal. And once I used that to, re to reach that goal, then maybe, you know, my path and goals shifted a little bit. The other thing that I did is that I married somebody who at the time was a sales trader and I got him into investment banking and he has had more of a traditional path. So one of the things we decided to do in our relationship was it was very clear that he you know, was more of a by the books kind of person. We, we joke around, we call it the lunch pail guy, right? And uh, you know, he 
started as an investment banker. He became a partner with an investment banking firm. Then he joined C-level of a, a company. Now he's in private equity. So he very much has had that very traditional role, which has allowed me um, as part of this family unit to do to go out and do these things that are a little bit more maverick, as you call them, or entrepreneurial and creative. And so that was part of our plan. And you've heard, I'm sure, many entrepreneurs from Warren Buffett on down saying that finding the right partner can often be a huge predictor of success. And I'm very lucky to have a partner where we really did kind of think about our plan and decide, you know, what made sense for us career-wise that, you know, we would both be happy with and not be sort of resentful of the other person. And so that, I think, is a little piece of it as well. You know, I'm actually so glad you brought that up. I never know where these conversations are going to go, except I always know they're going to go where they're supposed to. Um, that I don't think there's any more important just like choice we'll ever make in our life than yeah. whether to partner and if so, with whom. Yeah. Um, maybe let's talk a little bit about that. Like, do you have anything that either you know in hindsight of yourself or or you know through experiences with others? I'm sure you've you know, someone in your place in life probably does mentorship and gets people asking questions, you know, what should I do with my life kind of questioning all the time. Like, is there anything that you've, you, you would prescribe sort of from an early, uh, partnership partner selection process, uh, perspective? I, I have some, a lot of opinions on the subject, but I'd frankly rather hear yours. Like, like, yeah. Is there any sort of formula you can distill? A lot of young people listen to this show. And I think, you know, sometimes the currency that we operate from in, that, in our relationship part of our life isn't always playing the long game, so to speak. So I love I love this. This is so fun. I, I wish I had had time to like, you know, kind of write down all my thoughts because I'm sure as we uh, hang up on this, I'm going to have like 10 things that I wish I would have said. But um, definitely, first of all, I think that people approach relationships often in the wrong way. Um, people say like, I want, you know, this particular outcome or I want this, um, you know, goal and, and relationships aren't goals. They're just outcomes. You go and you meet people in your life and you decide if there is a, a role for you guys together. And so I think people often put too much pressure and don't spend enough time meeting different people and taking it, you know, kind of too seriously up front but then maybe not seriously enough on the back end once they found people where there is these sort of common um, connectors and values. Um, one of the things that is highly underrated, I do think, is having a, a team approach and a team mentality. It really needs to be the two of you against the world and not letting all of those externalities that come in sort of put you at odds with each other. I think that's a really important focus. And I think you need to to want the same kinds of things out of life. You know, having alignment on key principles and values is going to help you whether it comes to money, to kids, to navigating this, you know, sort of weird cultural political world that we happen to be in. Um, but, you know, I know they like to say opposites attract and it's fine, um, but you need to have enough of, of those commonalities. But at the same time, you have to have realistic expectations. You know, you can't assume that the one person is going to fulfill every role in your life. And I have 
a lot of people I've come across, good friends and whatnot, who are mad that, you know, their partner doesn't do every single thing. And it's like, you can have a friend that, you know, goes shopping with you. Like your husband doesn't need to do that. Doesn't mean he doesn't love you. Just, you know, that he doesn't need to fill that role. Um, and then I just, I think you always need to let the person know as you guys progress, you know, how important they are and to, you know, the, not take them for granted. There's a, a fun book, which I haven't actually even read the book. I just kind of know the the too long don't read uh, or didn't read called um, Love Languages. And they're sort of how people respond to love and like what it is that, you know, they kind of really react to. And just kind of knowing those general things is really helpful because it makes the other person feel appreciated. If you were putting out something to someone, if you're a gift giver, but the other person doesn't really respond well to gifts, like I'm not a person who like responds that well to gifts, that person might be trying to show you that they care and you're just not receiving it because there's a, a disconnect there. So just little things like that. Um, that, you know, if you have those, those commonalities and you are, you share values in your team, I think that's the, the closest thing, but you have to work on it, right? Like people put a lot of time into planning their weddings and then no time into planning like the next 50 years. And if you were as invested in planning that time as you would be the wedding, you'd probably have a better outcome. Um, thank you. I appreciate that wonderful advice for our audience. Gary Chapman, uh, the the Five Love Languages is the book, and it is a great book. Um, it is one that my wife and I both read and and applied. I'll, so, I'll okay, so what are so what are your love languages? Um, I am physical touch and probably secondarily words of affirmation. Yeah. Um, my wife is uh, quality time and acts of service. Okay. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm definitely so I'm my husband and I are both physical touch. And then he's a little bit higher on the affirmation and I'm a little bit lower on the affirmation, but we're, we're in those kind of circles as well. But for you guys, it's interesting because yours are different. So you have to yeah. really work to, to make that connection. Yeah. Because it means that my natural instinct to show love in the way that I would, I generally associate with receiving love is totally ineffective. And so I had to really almost i'd almost like create a character that like loves a different way until eventually yeah. it, it becomes a natural feedback loop and it and it's really rewarding yeah and, ge and in general i would say my advice on the subject is like you know that wh whether opposites attract or not uh i actually think is usually kind of a uh, a false paradigm because opposites in what sense demographically socioeconomically, psychographically, spiritually, like usually when we say opposites attract, like me and my wife, right? Like I grew up with, my my dad was a, a money manager. My mom was an, a, an attorney, right? So I grew up with, you know, professional parents, fairly yeah. affluent. Her dad was an underground coal miner and her mom was a, you know, teacher in a, in a small rural town, not affluent. Oh, well, opposites attract. Yeah, superficially. But like get into like our faith, get into like our how we reason through challenges, get into like our orientation toward like what do we value more, time or money? Like it's we're we're actually very aligned, even though some people might say, oh, opposites yeah. attract. But that's because so I, I think it's incumbent on people to learn enough about human behavior and about psychology and about how to really like estimate people along non-obvious criteria to get 
deeper than the freaking swipe left, swipe right culture we live in. It's like, you know, reductive and silly in, in their approach to relationships. I mean, that's my advice is just don't be yeah. silly. Be a, be a profound person. Yeah. You, you know, go. Jeff, it's so interesting. <laughs> What's coming up for me on that I think is so important um, is you also have to know yourself and you have right. to know what your own principles are. And if you don't have that level of comfort with yourself and you haven't come up with the principles, which, you know, a lot of people when they're younger, you know, I'm one of those people, like you just don't have that set. That's part of, you know, who you become as an, an adult. It's very hard to evaluate that in somebody else. So it really is kind of figuring out that what works for me, what are my principles, you know, where do I want to go from that and finding the connection on that point, which is, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad you sort of brought that out. Yeah, I, I strongly agree. And, and it's not like there's an age but there is, I think there's definitely a level of emotional maturity that often yeah. correlates to age. Although yeah. sadly, in some people's cases, it doesn't seem to matter how old they get because they never deal yeah. with the hard things that mature a person. But anyways, <laughs> um, okay. So relationships 101, you heard it here, folks. <laughs> um, okay. So now, thank you. You actually, you addressed the, you know, sort of what, what empowered you to kind of go in this more like, um, you know, maverick entrepreneurial direction. Now let's actually back up yeah. if we could. Um, you know, I, I think if I, if I do my job right, then this show attracts people that are outliers in some regard. And so I think whatever we mean an outlier, the question, especially if it's the one outlier category that's not terribly interesting to me is sports. Because usually it's like, well, what did you do to be able to jump 44 inches? Right. I don't know. I was I was born. To I won parents. the genetic lottery. Yes. Yeah. So that's not terribly interesting to me. But when it's like entrepreneurship, when it's creativity, you know, depth of 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 achievement in any real category, I'm like, how do how do we become the people that are capable of outlier things? Right. So so talk to me about. I mean, you seem like a fairly reflective person. Tell me all the stuff that I ought to know about you to help understand how you've ended up where you ended up. I think about this often. And so sometimes these things kind of come into light and I could be completely wrong, but it just was an interesting thing to me. So maybe it'll be interesting to you. One thing that I noted um, as sort of an interest in money, finance, entrepreneurship in general, is the fact that my dad made money a center of my life. I had no joke, at least six different piggy banks growing up. And some of them were really cool. I had this apple that had a worm that came out and took the money and brought it in. I had one that was like this old timey cash register that you put the money in and you go like this and it would register how it is. I had a Raggedy Ann one. I had one that my grandma gave me. You know, all these different kinds of interesting things. Uh, so it was almost like <laughs> the money and the toy part of my play were sort of intertwined. And I went with my dad, but people used to go into the banks. That was like a thing they did on Saturday morning. I would go with my dad. There would be donut holes. They had lollipops at the counter. It was like this fun place and we're going to the bank. And I just feel like finance and money was always a part of the conversation. So that's one thing that I just, for some reason, have a theory that people whose kids have lots of banks and are that's part of their their um, you know young uh, upbringing that 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 creates some level of interest that might not otherwise be there. 
Um, my dad was also very financially savvy. As I mentioned, you know, he was a, a blue collar worker. He was an electrician um, and didn't have a lot of formal education, but he was very sort of street smart. And so was always teaching me different concepts. He got me a credit card at a very young age to establish a credit history. And we'd always have these conversations. And he was also very encouraging of like, you know, just do whatever it is you want to do. Um, so I think that the creativity in me maybe is more innate, but it wasn't suppressed by having parents that said, don't do this. So if I wanted to go and make something and try and sell it in the neighborhood, my parents would say, that's great. Go ahead and do it. Um, by the time I was 12, I said I wanted to go to day camp for the summer. And my dad signed me up to work in the kitchen of the day camp, which was not exactly what I had meant, <laughs> but was a good lesson in terms of the fact that I don't want to be making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches every day for my life, um, as well as you know, other lessons. So I feel like um, having the parents who really sort of encouraged you know, entrepreneurship, self-reliance, you know, if there's something you want, you you buy it. If there's something that you've made, go out and try and sell it. Like they were just kind of encouraged that environment and didn't place any limitations. And so as a kid with imagination, you just sort of go down that path, I suppose. Yeah, I think I think like, you know, money and sex are the two things that when parents don't talk about them, it really leaves the kids to go in some unhealthy directions. Um, and so I, 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 I resonate with that a lot. I, I mentioned my dad was a money manager, but more than that, it wasn't so much that that's what he did. It's that like, I would sit on his lap and watch the, the ticker tape go yeah. by on, uh, I, he had it on his, I, I remember like being a little kid playing on a Bloomberg terminal at like six in his <laughs> office. And he would teach me about stocks and and yeah, okay. and it's and it's good because, I mean, in my work, I'm sure you experience this in your world. I, I, we can we can talk about it, but like, people's relationships with money are honestly, I would say, every bit as consistently toxic as people's traumas around you know relationship relationships, right? Like, and and often the cause of the trauma around relationships. <laughs> right. I would right. say, yeah, I would say it's probably if you just took the pool at large and put that aside, probably even more toxic for sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So okay, very cool. So if you know, parents listening, not that we try to give unsolicited advice here. Although in some ways that's what a podcast is. Um <laughs> yeah, talk to your kids about money and sex in a healthy way. Yeah. And by uh, the way, if you don't have great habits with money, find somebody else to talk to yeah. them about money and get involved in that conversation. You might learn something too, because there are a lot of people who don't talk to their kids about money because they have these bad habits themselves and they have no idea what they're doing or they're frightened um, for whatever reason, there's that barrier there. And so they decide they're just going to you know, pretend that doesn't exist. Yeah, exactly. So speaking of talking about money, you are a uh, a, a passionate, you know, believer in in certain foundational economic and social principles that you you passionately advocate for, um, which is frankly why I was excited to have you on the show because, like, I I actually believe that um, the way capitalism is being you know ideologically misappropriated by people that have an anti capitalistic agenda 
is possibly the most pernicious trouble of our time. Um, and so let's talk about that. And frankly, the more kids are raised ignorant of financial, basic financial principles by their parents, it leaves room for them to get subsumed into these, uh, you know, distorted ideologies that have very deep social consequences. So uh, why don't we, maybe, maybe let's talk about like, what are your sort of foundations for your views on economics and, and capitalism? So I would say my foundation is common sense and real life experience. Um, I, you know, I did not learn other than, you know, through my father, I wouldn't say specific economic principles, more financial principles. We were not a political family. We didn't have those kinds of discussions, but I learned a lot of street smart common sense, you know, one plus one equals two. And, you know, this is kind of a truth. I know they keep trying to say that, well, it varies and, you know, that that's not the case anymore. No, it, it's, that's it. It's, it's very discreet. And there are a lot of people who are delusional and want to put a lot of things around it. Um, and I'm just a very straightforward, common sense kind of person. So, you know, as I went through and got an economics degree and work in investment banking and then came out and started doing commentary on business and the markets and the economy and, and finance and politics, um, you know, I, I'm just I have a very sort of straightforward like this is very clear this works and this is very clear it doesn't um it's not surprising to me that you are somebody who's interested in capitalism because you seem to be somebody who is a, a studier of human nature and i think that this is a very important part of the conversation that is missed and goes back to the common sense piece is that if you understand human nature it will be very clear why certain systems work and why certain systems don't and all of the troubles that we have. Everybody likes to make things very, very complicated, but it always goes back to very simple principles, whether it's in our lives or relationships, economic systems and whatnot. So I am a believer in individual rights. I believe that we were born with a natural set of rights and that uh, they were given to us by our creator and that they need to be protected from um, you know, majority tyranny from government tyranny and 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 whatnot, and that the you know um, smallest minority in the world, as Ayn Rand often said, was the individual. And so, you know, I, I really do believe in that. I also do believe in the concept that the free transactions of you know millions, hundreds of millions, billions of people get to the right answer about things versus a handful of people trying to plan those out. And I also believe in basic things like good intentions don't necessarily lead to good outcomes. Um, Charlie Munger, who you know is unfortunately now passed, um, the partner of Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway, had a famous saying that says, show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome. And I think that's really the basis of looking at different economic systems and deciding what makes the most sense Plus, then we look at the the empirical evidence around the world. Um, how many people are fleeing free markets to go to controlled economies versus the you know the other way around? Um, <laughs> how many times have Marxist ideas worked at scale and created prosperity for people around the world? So, you know, we, we we have lots of data that we can go back to to support ideas. 
Um, I also understand what money is. And I think a lot of the people um, who talk about money don't understand it, you know, as a medium of exchange, as a unit account, as a store of value, and as a proxy for productivity. And so if you don't fundamentally understand the things that it is that you're talking about, it makes very diff makes it very difficult, which is why we get these people who are delusional who buy in and say, oh no, you can just do these things. And then when you take it back to sort of the concrete is, well, what is it that we're talking about? They can't even articulate that. So a lot of these things have been proven out, um, you know, with lots of real time um, examples, you know, here in recent history. So people who haven't had the opportunity to understand them or see them on close, unfortunately now do still, still doesn't necessarily change people's minds. Oh, real, whatever hasn't been tried. It has, it doesn't work. So that's kind of where I come from fundamentally. So, yeah, I mean, I, I feel I have no doubt in my mind, um, just for the audience to know, we have officially 30 minutes left in this podcast, which is probably going to be about 1% of 1% sufficiency for us to actually sufficiently cover these ideas, right? Like we're not going to get there. But I, I guess I feel like actual sadness around the finance and economics conversation, because I don't think other than maybe a generalized uh, rejection of like faith concepts in society, which I mean, this is just me being personal. Um, I don't think there's like, like I said earlier, I don't think there's a bigger problem in this world than people's um, distorted perspective and, and and comprehension around around money and it's like i mean it, it it the consequences are i mean like what what's happening at our border right now and what's happening in our quote sanctuary cities right now where services are being overrun and like i mean and, and what you know mao and stalin and like this is all fundamentally like you look at like what was the actual opening the little psycho like psychological opening that allowed marx to become lenin to become stalin it was it was people's manipulatability around their perception of money right well, and it's just it's generally it's envy politics yeah. and and victimization um you know you can tell somebody that they are a victim or you could tell someone that they have a lot of opportunity and they're going to you know behave and believe you you know either way that you say it now some people are like me or contrarian if you say no you can't do something we're going to do the opposite but for many people you know there's these two paths and when you tell people i'm sorry you can't do something it does become very limiting to them and that tends to trickle through and shape principles and mindsets and it creates barriers and then it allows other people um, who are looking to consolidate their own power of again a very human scenario to happen uh to to capitalize upon that no pun intended and so that's you know when we get to a situation like we have now where you 
I think you're like me. We want everyone to be successful. We want to remove the barriers. We want to push people who want to succeed in whatever way that, you know, that comes out for them. It's not necessarily just monetarily, but whatever it is that's your goal and objective to be able to achieve that without these artificial barriers. And then you have a bunch of people who go, well, if we let people do that, I'm worried they're going to think that I'm not important and I have to find a way to secure my importance and insert myself in that process. And unfortunately, over lots and lots of time, that just can becomes increasingly bastardized and you know goes through the same cycles that we've seen over and over again throughout history. It's not unique um, here. What was unique here is that you know we were the first country that was founded on the principle of protecting the individual's rights. And so there is no sort of bastion of freedom that's looking to do that that's waiting in the wings. When we took over from Great Britain, we were actually in a, a better place than they were. They had done some good things around property rights and whatnot, but was still very different. Um, so we're kind of this you know sole bastion of hope. And if we screw this up, we screw it up for ourselves. We screw up for future generations. We've screwed up for people around the world who like to come here illegally and participate in the system. Um, so it is something that is very much worth fighting for, but it has become a much larger fight, which is why I think you have so much you know, anger and frustration at the situation. Hey there, real quick, I just wanted to let you know, I have been concentrating a lot lately on providing tons of value to my text message community. This could be random thoughts. This could be letting you be the first to know about an event I'm planning or a special I'm running or a free training I'm hosting. Anyway, just shoot me a text to get subscribed. The number is 702-996-3926. Thanks so much. Let's get back to the podcast. Yeah, I think it's really important for, for I'm really grateful you're, you're sharing this, for, for people to remember that like, it's like you said, like, yes, I know that if you if you pull up like the the human rights watch index of freedom, America is not technically at the top of the list anymore because like, well, right, because like media censorship and like some some whack stuff happening here. But fundamentally. There's still only one place in the world that is willing to go fight for freedom. Everybody else is like willing to participate in it as long as it's, you know, sort of protected by someone else. I, actually, I, I take that back. Israel. Like, I think they'll <laughs> they'll kick some ass for freedom. But and that I might get some haters for saying that in, in the modern times. But on it, you know. Well, as as a Jew, I'm going to say, but they also have a very socialist um, sort of perspective, which is very inherent in the, you know, the Jewish religion, the way that's right. set up. So it. Israel's fantastic, and obviously I, I support its uh, independence and the right of the Jewish people to have a homeland. However, they don't have, the, they're a tiny country, they're not the scale, and they don't come from a perspective of protect, protecting individual rights. They come from a perspective yeah. of protecting the collective, the Jewish state. So even Israel doesn't meet the litmus test of what we're talking about. Here. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, they're not the linchpin of everybody else's freedom. America is the linchpin of everybody else's freedom. And uh, I would say handle with care. So so maybe let's talk to the present reality in this country, because I, I just see so rampant the way the, you know, and, and 
it's really like the Marxist lens of how the world is viewed. You know, what, what Marx succeeded at doing was make every conversation a conversation about power and oppression. Right. Right. Like that's the that's the prism through which through which he viewed the world. And 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 in a very real way, that has that has become kind of the prevailing narrative here, whether people call themselves, you know, a socialist or a, you know, social libertarian or a communist or a democrat or a, you know, panda worshiper. I don't know. But we basically are dominated right now by the lens of of power and oppression. And that seems to be probably what concerns me the most. Like there's a lot of other ways to view humanity. But it's like it's like the economic argument is getting uh what would the word be weaponized, I guess, to get everybody fixated on the the extent to which they have or have not in every area of life. And so I don't know. I, I don't. I'm not actually 100 percent sure where I'm, what what the question is that I'm heading towards. So let me try to get there. Um, what what basic principles or principle or, or principles would you encourage someone to become more educated about to try to insulate themselves from being manipulatable in this way? I think it goes back to a belief in yourself. And a belief that, you know, you are a unique individual, that you are not part of the group, that you are not responsible for something that somebody else has done because you share a characteristic with them. You are not responsible for, you know, other brunettes, for other women, for other Jewish people, for your own family, for your spouse. You are responsible for yourself and to the extent you have minor children for them. But that's it. That's who you are responsible for. And yes, you can do wonderful things to help other people out once you take your own personal responsibility. But the idea that just because you have some immutable or other characteristic in common with somebody, that all of a sudden that puts you in a group with them that you know you should bear responsibility is just absolutely silly. I mean, it makes no sense. Everybody was born on my birthday. I'm responsible for, like, if you just think about it, just take a step back and how just absolutely dumb that sounds. That is the basis of collectivism. And it becomes this Hunger Games that, you know, if you are in some sort of um, minority and, you know, you are, uh, that you have been oppressed in some way or you want to pretend that you've been oppressed in some way, then that trumps some other group of people. I mean, it's just absolutely insane. It's fun in sports, right? Like we can be on teams in sports, but you've chosen that. You're not forced into participating in this absolutely ridiculous narrative. And so I think when when people st start thinking about the implications of what it means to be responsible for somebody that you don't know or even if you do know them, that isn't you. It, you, you can kind of take a, a step away from that. I think you also have to realize that the only reason this exists is because of capitalism and because right. there is a very strong industry in grift around creating victimization. And so it's sort of ironic um, that the free markets have allowed that and that people have chosen to flock to this uh this victim narrative as long as it you know it works for them um and then when once it doesn't then i think those people start going oh hey disconnect i'm not sure what happened here 
Um, so, you know, that, that in and of itself is funny. So, you know, if you want to choose to do that, you know, understand the consequences of your choice, but really it is about just kind of critical thinking of does, does this fundamentally make any sense? And if it doesn't make sense, then you're in the wrong place. Well, you mentioned Ayn Rand, um, my, I don't know if it's my favorite. It's the one I quote the most. Uh, my most oft quoted Ayn Rand quote is that, it's probably my favorite, is that civilization is the process of setting man free from men. I like that. And this sort of, I, this notion of like the primacy of the individual over the collective, um, I, I, I think about it often. I, I hold to it deeply uh, in large part because the majority's never actually been right about anything, um, which is a pretty pretty powerful historical truth to to really really dig into and go wait is that really true or is that just a thing people say? Oh my gosh, they may have been right at a time, but over time, any idea that that the majority holds over time gets disproven and replaced through creative destruction of ideas. Like, which means. The reason that's so important is I think a lot in terms of biases in the world. It's not like binary, like I do this, therefore not at all that. It's more like, okay, there's two things, you know, that exist in sort of a dialectical tension and I hold them to 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 simultaneously be true. But at the same time, we're all biased toward one or the one or another of these things, yeah. right? And so it's not that the collective is a meaningless concept and that all that matters is the triumph of the individual, because that can that can get taken to, you know, Machiavellian extremes, right? But at the at our core, are we biased toward the preservation of the group or the preservation of the individual, or at least the preservation of the rights of the individual to preserve themselves? Yes. And, and I I would add oh, to ahead. what you're saying about you know this majority. And I would also say we're we're now experiencing what some people are calling the tyranny of the minority as well, that it's not just that the majority opinions are often wrong. It's also these very vocal minority groups that end up, you know, making everybody kowtow because they're making a lot of noise or they're creating a lot of destruction or whatever it is. So just because a group is smaller also doesn't make them correct. You know, it goes back to that group think. And for anybody who challenges the idea of groups, um, I always joke that socialists were the kids who liked group projects in school. Did you like group projects? Did you like the you know, being the person who did all the work and then have everybody else free ride off of you to get the A? No. Well, then why would you like that for the rest of your life? Um, so sometimes it's just, you know, kind of putting people back into the scenarios where just think about it in this context. And sometimes that makes it easier for people to comprehend. Yeah, that's that's a actually kind of funny. No, I I loathed group projects. Honestly, I loathed virtually everything. That's a little extreme. I loathed a lot of what I experienced in school. Um, so, but yeah, this this idea of like the individual. I'm curious if you could maybe share your views on because it seems like there's a concerted effort in the world today to like reverse that thrust that for like, you know, pretty much go America. I mean, in the in the 250-ish years of our country's founding, I mean, we elevated the individual 
to at least be equivalent to, if not superior to the collective in terms of rights. Yeah. And it seems like there's a there's a push to to reverse that right now. There is. So I, and, I talk about this yeah, extensively in You Will Own Nothing, which is my latest um, New York Times bestseller. And my theory on this is that we have gone through this cycle in the U.S. and we are coming to the end of sort of this natural cycle. We have had 80 years where we've been the center of the financial universe. And as we talked about before, before us, it was Britain and before Britain, it was the Dutch. And so this is something that happens on a regular basis that, you know, <laughs> you go through this period of, indi of individualism and free markets or you know, things that kind of look like that. And then, you know, people try to take on power and they take on debt and debt stands in the way of, um, you know, sort of growth and opportunities. And it becomes this sort of uh, destructive process. And so we can see that the U.S. is not on a healthy financial trajectory. And you don't have to listen to Carol Roth on this. The IMF has said this. Our own Treasury has said this. Our own Federal Reserve has said this. Um, the CBO just came out with a report that shows this. It, the fiscal trajectory is not sustainable. And so if you're somebody who is very smart and elite and powerful and wealthy and well-connected and you're a student of history, you can go back and go, wow, it really looks like the U.S. is at the end of a cycle, a cycle that has benefited me. And change is scary. And I really have two paths here, you know, as this, you know, quote unquote elite, um, I could just sit back and hope as things shift that it works out for me, or I can do everything in my power to control it, to make sure it works out for me. And I believe that latter point is happening, right? Basic human nature. You've got money, you've got wealth, you don't want to lose it. And so you do what you can to try to steer that. And if I don't think it's a starting point of the intention of I'm going to kill everybody's rights. It's more of I need to do this for my own self-preservation. And if everybody else's rights get trampled in the meantime, so be it. And so I think a lot of what has happened, you know, we're seeing around that, you know, things that are done to preserve the size and the scope and the power of governments, things that have done um, with our currency that have transferred, you know, epic amounts of wealth, historical amounts of wealth from Main Street to Wall Street, additional barriers to keep people from working and try to force them into working for big businesses and unions instead of small businesses and entrepreneurship. All of this is being done because there's a panic going on that we're near the end of the cycle, things are going to shift, and the people in control don't want to lose that control, and they don't want to lose their wealth. So I'm, I'm quite confident that you've read uh, Principles for Dealing with the Changing World Order. So I've read uh, some right? of it, and I've quoted some of it in my book. I have not, to be fair, I've not read the whole sure. book. Yes. Yeah, I, I bring it up because if it's the, it's the book that I know of that most sort of uh, explicitly details the cycles that you're describing yeah. and the dynamics of those cycles. And it, it is, it's, I mean, it's a hard pill to swallow, but like America is, is I mean, we're collapsing, you know, we, we really are. And so, so what do you say? I mean, there's a whole like existential fear conversation, but we probably don't have time for that. But, but like, like to the, to the average person who's trying to figure out I guess simultaneously, who to you know what to do with their life and their work and their money, and also 
maybe who to support, who to vote for. I don't even know if that we, we want to go there because I'm not entirely sure it always matters that much. But um, what what do you how, how do you get somebody like what's your argument to go beyond either? I guess if you're an elite to go beyond self-interest and if you're not an elite to go beyond operating out of fear. How do, yeah. you, how do you? I mean, there there that? is no argument for the elite to um, you know stop being self interested, which is why the government was set up as a small entity with a small purview to prevent them from being able to do those things. All the things that people complain about, the cronyism and the favoring the wealthy and well connected. If the government didn't have that purview, they couldn't do that. But of course, they're going to do that because that's human nature. That's what's you know what happens uh, when you give the government that purview. So that's why I'm more of a small government. Um, person from a ph philosophical standpoint, I think people keep joking, like, you know, about going all Javier Millet, the uh, new president yeah. of Argentina, and doing the things he's doing with, you know, shutting these things down, which is kind of funny, but it's kind of true. Because, you know, if you expect somebody who's going to go in there and be a Mother Teresa when they have all of this power and all these different things they can control, good luck. You know, it's not about finding the right person to fix your broken system. It's about to create a great system that you can put any idiot into and it's going to work, right? That's a, another great book if you're an entrepreneur and you haven't read it yet about systems is The E-Myth Revisited by Michael E. Gerber. You know, basic, you know, kind of 101 entrepreneurship, you know, scaling businesses. And it's the same thing for the government is that it was created to be this small thing that you know you're not letting people into to corrupt it um and of course we just kind of it slowly piece by piece accepted things until it you know became this um you know frankenstein kind of monster this blob right that took up took over everything so i'm much much less concerned about finding the right person than i am fixing the systems which i guess in a sense requires some people to get in there who are willing to go in and and to make that call and fix the system. Um, but I think it requires a lot more advocacy on our part. And unfortunately, because we have lived through the most amazing period in all of history where we have not had to stand up for our freedoms for the for most of us, um, and that you know many of them have been given to us and we've just been the beneficiaries, we don't realize that the protection of them is part of our obligation on an ongoing basis. So really using your voice to try to get these people worried and shamed and concerned about losing what it is that they are worried about losing in service about what is actually important to you as an individual is, I think, part of the the takeaway. And we've seen some really good grassroots victories lately uh, many, 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 many more to be had. Uh, but, you know, something like natural asset companies, where enough of us went out and made a big deal about this and put in comments to the point where the SEC didn't even get a chance to comment, the New York Stock Exchange withdrew the request because of all of the backlash. And so if we get people uh, more focused on, you know, hey, your role is in protecting this and making sure that, you know, we don't go off the cliff and saying that this isn't acceptable. I mean, we're on an unsustainable fiscal trajectory. We all know this. We've been through historic inflation. Who's marched on Washington about that? Nobody. Why? That's insane. Like that that should be the the number one thing everybody 
he should be marching yeah. about. And it's like it doesn't even register. So the politicians have no incentive to take you seriously when you're like, this is horrible. You've crushed my life. I can't afford things. The things I can't afford are now half the size that they used to be. Um, well, what have you done about it? Nothing. You've just complained you, on Twitter. Do you think that there is a coordinated effort to uh, sort of curate our educational offering to young people oh, yeah. to try to yes. pr preserve economic ignorance and yes. distract them into these social issues? Yes. Because like that's my, okay. I Because I, I totally agree. I mean, the answer to why nobody's marched about what you just described is because the average person doesn't understand what you just described. They, they understand the effects. They don't understand the causality. And I'm not being supercilious no, in saying that. I'm just saying that they weren't taught. And you have to very proactively seek that information. I mean, most people I know don't know who like, you know, Ludwig von Mises is um, or or even Ayn Rand. Well, they, they probably know who she is. Probably never read, read the books like. But they um, don't they don't like her because somebody told them that she was bad. Yeah, somebody told them that she's an atheist, that she hates God. Oh, oh, oh maybe I don't know. She wasn't talking about God. She was and by about the way, money. you don't have you don't have to like her at all. You you might not even like some of her thoughts, but you might learn one or two things, and that's the most important thing. I'm I'm very good at separating art from artists, and I feel like that's one of the keys to happiness too. Here, since we're talking about things like you know, you might not like the person, but that doesn't mean that some of the things they said aren't really interesting. And you don't have to agree with all of them, but some right. of them might have value. Yeah, so I, exactly. So, I mean, how do you, like, like I always think about, you know, enti entitlements and like government benefits programs, right? Is like the reality is what is needed. I mean, Javier Malay is like, that's literally what's needed. Like somebody needs to come in and do a pretty hard reset yeah. And there's going to have to be some, you know, some rationing, some hard cuts. And, you know, this is where the individual argument can can be a little bit tough because people actually you, you talk about the defense of freedom. I mean, one of the things that has historically characterized America's or, or free people's willingness to defend themselves is great personal sacrifice. How do you get people to let go of their nanny state, you know, book of promises, because at the end of the day, if we don't, our grandkids are, are not going to have a country to live in. I think it's part of it is just being realistic. And the second is getting very cozy with math. Um, when the American Rescue Plan came out in 2021, frankly, when the CARES Act came out in 2020. So again, this is bipartisan. And there were these stimulus plans and, uh, you know, they're saying, we're going to, you know, cut you a check for a thousand bucks or 1200 bucks. I went, don't do this. Right. Don't do this. You're going to end up paying $10,000 a year for the rest of your life for this thousand dollars. This is how it works. And a bunch of people said, eh, you know, I want my thousand dollars, whatnot. And that's exactly what happened. Because again, math, <laughs> this is how it works. And for the people who stood on the sidelines go, oh, I can't believe something called stimulus stimulated the economy, you know, then you need to probably not be participating in this conversation. It's literally in the name of it. So that's one thing. The second thing is somebody with a lot of credibility and that they like, I don't know, maybe like Dolly Parton or somebody that like everybody universally likes needs to stand up there and just explain how math works and go, okay, 
basically, this is how the government gets money. And these are the things, this is what it spends money for. And this equation isn't working. So here are the only things that can be done. And we need to pick one of these because if we don't, here are the consequences, right? So we can increase productivity, which is great. But that means getting the government out of a lot of things that people want the government involved in. That's the best way forward. If we can just massively increase growth, we get more revenue, it gets us out in a very positive way. Second is tax revenue. Nobody, everyone wants more taxes for somebody else except for for themselves. But the reality is that there's not enough taxes to be able to cover what it is that they spend. And there are consequences that if you raise taxes beyond a certain point, then it becomes um, basically, it, it, it reverses the efficacy of it and basically makes the economy contract and you lose jobs. And it, there's only so far that you can take it. And there's actually some great um, materials out there from some of the foundations that have shown that there is sort of at any point in time, regardless of what the highest tax rate is, this is the tax rate that always <laughs> ends up being paid because that's as far as you can stretch it before the economy goes. So you have those those levers to increase revenue, and then you have the spending that you can cut spending, but most people don't understand where that spending is coming from. So you have to look at what's driving that spending and get real about things like the entitlement programs that they lied to you. And oh, by the way, you don't own them. So it'd be really nice to create if you're going to create a, a system of social security that have actual ownership over that and not just something that's a Ponzi scheme. Um, so there's that piece. And then the last piece is if none of that works, then you've got debt. And what happens at some point with debt, and we are far past that point in terms of our debt to GDP, is that the more debt that they print, the more inflation that comes. And we've experienced this now. And so now people need to understand that's what drove it and that that's not the outcome they want. But given those other things, if, if you're a politician, you don't want to raise taxes too much. You're going to freak people out. You're not going to give up the power that's going to generate productivity. You're not going to cut spending. So that's what they're going to lean on. And they're going to continue to destroy your purchasing power and everything that you've worked hard for. So somebody needs to have that honest conversation and people need to let that sink in to get everybody on the same page. And, you know, it's got to be somebody who people like and trust and, you know, gets people fired up about this. And there's just so many people incentivized to uh, to discredit and to, you know, make up things that don't work, that that's a, that's a tough thing. That's going to take somebody with um, a, 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 a set of brass balls, I guess is the best way to say it. Are, are you optimistic that, that like America reaches this moment or is it, is it really out of hand at this point? So, you know, I am a, optimistic realist where I feel like we have to try and we have to fight. The realist in me says, I don't see it happening. But that, you know, we'd have no duration. That could be 50 years right. from now. I could be gone. So I don't know. But I have to just keep trying and trying to get people to pay attention and do what they can. Because the reality is there is no other alternative. And I don't think people understand that, you know, if America goes sideways, that's going to put the entire world into a 
a bad slide. We're going to be living in a very different world. And I don't think people have a, a sense of how much that's all interconnected either. So, um, you know, I think the only thing we can do is try to take care of the things on our own level, make sure we're tight and, you know, do some advocacy, inform some people and uh, that's, you know, control what you can control. Yeah, we're uh, we're the levy. And honestly, when the levy's threatened, it, you don't stop and go, well, am I really going to make a difference? You just... You just Old. pile the sandbags right, on. Yeah. <laughs> just, just act as if, right? Um, okay. Well, Carol, I, I, like I said, I knew I knew full well we were not going to really get sufficiently through this conversation, but we've done our best. Um, before we wrap here, can you share with the world how they can go get more of this kind of goodness from you? Absolutely. So I am on social media at Carol J.S. Roth. I tend to spend most of my time on Twitter trying to figure out Instagram. Sometimes I post on LinkedIn. I have a newsletter that comes out um, usually a couple times a month at carolroth.com slash news. And uh, if you want to read more about this, my most recent book is You Will Own Nothing. You can get it wherever fine books are sold. And if you are a uh, preparation person and you haven't created your legacy plan, your information and wishes for your loved one, whether it's your aging parents or for your own kids uh, to deal with aging issues and passings, your wishes and information, Go to futurefile.com right now and spend $100 and put that together so your loved ones have a roadmap if something goes sideways. Amazing. I, I'm going to go check that out myself. Well, Carol, thanks uh, so much for being a guest on Unlock Your Potential. Thanks so much, Jeff. It's a very interesting conversation, so thank you. Yeah, thank you. And of course, to all you viewers and listeners out there, what I tell you every time, you're the best part of this show. No offense to Carol. And uh, I'm glad we got to spend this time together. Can't wait to do it again next time. Take care. Hey, it's Jeff here. If you liked this episode of Unlock Your Potential, it would mean so much if you would like and share the episode on whatever platform you're listening or viewing on. And if you really like what we're doing here and you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving a review. There is so much work that goes into these episodes and you leaving a positive review lets us know that that work is reaching people and especially it helps us reach other people your review could be the reason that someone else decides to tune in check out this podcast and unlock their potential and ultimately level up the quality of their life so thank you thank you thank you so much for your support and for listening especially if you like or share or leave a review thank you for helping us spread the word and thank you for unlocking your potential to go make the world and your world a better place